So if you would, please open up to Psalm 88 in your Bible. And as you're doing so, please stand in preparation for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 88. The introduction says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. Psalm 88, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my close friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What are we to do with Psalm 88? The words that we just read are not the words of comfort, the words of hope that many turn to the Psalms to find. Instead, we find the words of a man who seems to have lost all hope and who is receiving no comfort. How are we to make sense of it? Sometimes when we face problems, we turn to God and he's swift to answer us. We like those stories, the ones with the nice happy endings. But what about when that doesn't happen? What about when the problem persists? What are we to make of things when the cancer comes back? What are we to do when we suffer the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child? What about when the problem persists and when we can't even pinpoint the source of the problem? When we just don't feel like this life is going the way it's supposed to go? Do these things only happen to the unbeliever or is that the lot of the true follower of God as well? To whom do we turn 
when it seems that God has not answered. James Montgomery Boyce said that Psalm 88 reminds us that life is filled with trouble, trouble, even to the point of despair, even for mature believers. This psalm was written by one such mature but troubled believer. So who was the author of this psalm, and what were the circumstances under which it was written? In the introduction, we're told that the psalm is a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. So let me tell you a little bit about Heman. Going back to the patriarchs, Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons, Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath, uh, Jacob's middle son, was the grandfather of Moses and Aaron. One of Moses and Aaron's cousins was a guy by the name of Korah. And Korah led a rebellion against Moses. God destroyed Korah and his followers who rebelled. But this psalm, along with a number of others, uh, they are attributed to the sons of Korah. And these are descendants of the very rebel who rebelled against Moses and was destroyed in the wilderness. The line of Korah did not die out. The story of the sons of Korah is a wonderful illustration of God's grace. One lesson we can learn from this is that God can use you no matter where you come from. So Heman was of the line of Korah, and he was also a direct descendant of the prophet Samuel. Heman was well known for his wisdom. In fact, when 1 Kings 4 seeks to declare the wisdom of Solomon, the first two men that he compares and says that Solomon's, Solomon's wisdom was greater than was Ethan, who wrote Psalm 89, and, and uh, Heman. He was also a skilled singer and a musician, and he was one of the men appointed to lead the worship in Israel during the time of David and of Solomon. So Heman was wise, he was talented, and he was accomplished. So what then was happening in his life that led him to pen such a bitter and sad song as Psalm 88? We don't have a direct event in the narrative of Scripture to point to, but as we go through the psalm, we will get some brief glimpses, uh, some hints as to what he was suffering. Perhaps the lack of specificity here is a good thing because that allows us to relate to what was written here when we go through our own valleys. We're going to look at the psalm in three parts, each part beginning with a declaration of Heman's continuance in prayer. And that is a point I will come back to later. I will be using an outline from Matt Mason. And we'll look first at verses 1 through 9a. And we'll discuss the psalmist's desperation. Then in 9b through 12, we'll see the psalmist's disputation. And finally, in 13 through 18, we'll talk about the psalmist's isolation. The opening 
almost seems to not go with the rest of the psalm. The tone of the remainder of the composition is full of darkness and despair, the likes of which are not matched anywhere else in the psalms in in terms of its sheer bleakness. Yet the author begins by addressing Yahweh, the Lord, as God of my salvation. He is perhaps basing this on his past experience because his present circumstances don't seem to match this assessment of who God is. He's calling on the God who saves, yet being saved by God is not his own personal present experience. The despair he expresses here comes perhaps from his recognition of the chasm that exists between the the knowledge that he has of the Lord as God of his salvation and the reality of his life as it currently is unfolding with no salvation in sight. Perhaps addressing the Lord in this way, Heman is indicating his realization that his one avenue of hope in the face of hopelessness is to be found only in God. He rails against God for not hearing him and not responding to him, yet he continues to pray to God. This is the irony we see in the Lament Psalms. Beyond logic and in spite of everything he observes, he sees himself as being ignored and afflicted by God, yet he continues to pray in the hope that in the hope that the Lord will once again show himself to be the God of his salvation. He goes on to say, I cry out day and night before you. This gives the clear impression that this has been going on for some time. Time continues to pass. He continues to pray. And God continues to be silent. So in verse 2, he pleads with God, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Next, we see him lay out in verses 3 through, three through 9 the reasons for his cry. The psalmist's desperation. One aspect of this part of the prayer is seen in the pronouns he uses. In verses 3 through 5, we see a lot of my and I as the psalmist focuses in on himself and his troubles. Look at it with me. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. And while self-reflection can be uh, good to help us to evaluate changes that we need to make and look at sins that are in need of repentance, the practice of spending too much time and energy focusing on ourselves and our problems can lead us down a dark path. A better route to take is what Paul calls for in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We need to take time to get our focus off of ourselves. As followers of Christ, we are to have the mind of Christ. And he though he was very God, took on human flesh, becoming very man, and humbled himself for us by dying on the cross to redeem us from our sin. Our psalmist here shows none of that focus on others. 
his self-focus continues in verse 5 with a set of comparisons that he makes about himself. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He sees his situation like that of those who have passed on from this world. Old Testament followers of God did not have the clear picture that the New Testament paints for us of the time after this life. They viewed the grave as a place of separation, which it is. But the emphasis brought out by these comparisons is the part that he sees God playing. Look at the shift that takes place in verse 6 as the predominant pronoun becomes you. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. The description of his life in verse 5 are here shown in his view to be because of the Lord. Because God put him there. Not only that, but continue on in verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. He believes he is under the wrath of God. Again, we don't know what the exact circumstances are, but Heman sees God as not only allowing his circumstances, but actively causing them. The Hebrew word translated here in the ESV as overwhelm could actually be rendered as answer, as if the psalmist is telling God, I've been pouring out my heart to you, and the only answer I get back are these waves of trials. Another aspect of his troubles is loneliness, and even this he attributes to God. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. One of the worst feelings when going through troubles is the feeling of being alone. But Heman not only felt that he had no one with him, again, he blames God for this. You have caused them to shun me. You have made me a horror. He saw no way out of his wretched state. He exclaims, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. What are we to make of these accusations? This is not how we pray and this makes us uncomfortable. We've learned to pray what one commentator called presentable prayers. But these words before us are not like that. Notice the language of feeling and the descriptive language throughout this psalm. I cry out, full of troubles, down to the pit, no strength in the grave, cut off in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, you overwhelm me. My companions shun me. I'm a horror. I'm shut in. Brothers and sisters, God is not put off by your desperation. Again, not enough background and detail is, provide us, is provided here for us to determine exactly what is happening. Is Heman actually experiencing the wrath of God? Is God really pushing Heman's friends away? We don't know for sure, but that's how he feels. And he's sharing here how he is feeling. So does this mean that in light of Psalm 88, we're free to spit out any bitter accusations against God? 
I don't think that's the case. But it does show that like Heman, we may wrestle with the tension between what we know and what we feel. Like Heman, uh, we can struggle between these things. In verse 1, he expresses what he knows. O Lord, God of my salvation. But with the rest of the psalm, he shares exactly what he feels. And what he feels, like what we can sometimes feel, doesn't fit all neat and tidy within our theology. Life can be messy and hard. When it is, God still wants us to cry out to him. And that is exactly what we find Heman doing. Follow along with the rest of verse 9. Every day I call upon you. O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. He doesn't understand his situation, but his commitment to pray to the Lord remains. We see the frequency of his prayers every day, and we also see the, the posture of his prayers, hands outstretched to the Lord. When God chooses to leave a believer in affliction, the Lord's, purpose is, the Lord's purposes is to teach constancy and persistence in prayer. Rather than be smothered by grief, Heman turns to vent his anguish to God. His griefs are not merely things happening to him, but things God is doing to him. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on this psalm, stated that many a well-informed Christian endures under great affliction by being aware of God's sovereignty over all things. But now we see the psalmist's disputation. It is at this point that he launches into a series of questions to God. With these questions, he appears to be challenging God to rescue him. Look at verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He asks these as rhetorical questions, and they all have the implied answer of no. The assumption here, like what we saw in verses 5 and 6, is that those who go to the grave are forgotten. So these verses and other Old Testament passages about death and the grave have led many to argue that the Old Testament believers knew nothing of life after death. And we know this is inaccurate as several other psalms and some of the writings of the prophets give us much to ponder and help enrich our New Testament uh, teaching on the resurrection and on eternal life. Prior to Jesus' resurrection, uh, their understanding of what happens after death was not as clear as what the New Testament teaches. For one example of how our understanding has been changed by the resurrection, uh, consider in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James and John, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, 
questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they didn't have a category for that. They didn't have an understanding of resurrection that we have this side of Jesus' resurrection. The author of this psalm knows of no hope for his future. He's depressed by afflictions and can only conceive of gloom and despair in his future. One aspect of the psalms is the connection of ideas regarding the place of the dead and the concept of worship. For the Israelites, there was a strong sense in which being alive meant praising God. Think of what we sang earlier from Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The implication, the implication of that and the flip side of that is the concept of death as a praiseless reality. The place of the dead was seen as removing the believer from the presence of God so that praise is no longer offered. The psalmist is right, so far as this world is concerned, that God is praised and loved, his love known only by those who are rescued by God's answer to prayer. So regarding the psalmist's disputation, in the words of William Plumer, the sole object is to show that, the, that in the present conflict and trouble, if God would show himself on the side of the psalmist, he must manifest his favor before death supervenes and leaves the point apparently settled against his servant. While our concept of life and death may be more developed this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, there are still some lessons we can learn from the Hebrew attitudes toward praise and life and death. First, do we associate our Christian walk with praise in the same inseparable manner that the Old Testament believers did? Or are we so consumed by materialism and the matters of this life that we've forgotten that life with God should be marked by praise and thankfulness? Second, we are given cause to stop and ponder the link between death and a praiseless attitude. If our spiritual lives have not maintained an attitude of grateful praise, we need to ask whether some sort of spiritual death has separated us from God. If we do not find reason for praise, are we really alive in Christ? As we approach the final section of Psalm 88, we are again reminded that it is not necessary to have all the answers in order for us to hold on to the Lord for salvation. He has just poured out his heart, questioning God, who has not yet turned and answered. Yet still, the response of Heman in verse 13 is this, But, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Perhaps after a sleepless night of unanswered questions, he begins yet another day crying out to the Lord, as he has no doubt done many times before. After everything he has suffered, he is still praying. This is our lesson from Psalm 88. We are again reminded that God wants us to cry out to him. 
as Heman says, I'm still suffering, but O oh Lord, I cry. My circumstances are still grim, but O oh Lord, I cry. I still feel alone, but O oh Lord, I cry. There will be times when the only thing we can do is to just keep holding on to the Lord, crying to him, and trusting against all apparent hope. The psalmist continues to pray all the way to the end, but he still has unanswered questions. He's still afflicted, and we catch a final glimpse of the psalmist's isolation. He continues to question, question God, asking in verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? In his isolation, he still clings to the Lord. He surveys his life, and he cannot recall a time without suffering. Look at his assessment of the years of his life in verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Looking ahead, likewise, he sees no relief in sight as he again points to the Lord as the source of his torments. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. Now, on to verse 18. If we look for a happy ending in the final verse of this psalm, we will be disappointed. Again, he recounts how isolated he is as he states, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. While we have seen he's still clinging to God, it appears that all else have forsaken him. Here he is cut off from all friendship. We can speculate whether it is an illness that he is suffering that they're avoiding or some persecution in which they, they don't wish to partake. Or it may be that he's only imagining that they've all abandoned him. Many suffering souls feel isolated by their trauma and in many cases make it difficult for even willing friends to draw near. It's easy to think that no one understands our situation, that we're the only one who has ever faced this particular trial. The despairing believer trusting in Christ will find, will find a true companion in sorrows, a friend who both understands and offers spiritual help. But for Heman, there appeared to be no help uh, to be found, but only darkness. In the Hebrew, like the ESV, the final word of this psalm is darkness. Helen Keller, who was born blind and deaf, knew what it was like to be alone and to be in darkness. She had this to say, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. We can do a lot for a brother or sister going through dark times if we will come alongside them. We don't always need to know what to say. We don't need to have all the answers. Sometimes the best we can do is to simply be and to let them know that we're with them. Last week, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with uh, Cammie's brother, uh, who is a counselor, 
And I asked him what kind of issues he helps his counselees with. And he said predominantly he deals with depression and anxiety. Some people suffer such chronic debilitating depression that they struggle to even get out of bed in the morning. I asked him further, what are the reasons that people have these issues? And he told me that there are different kinds of depressions. So I looked them up and I looked in several places and depending on what source you cite, uh, they say there are six, seven, or even eight different kinds of depression. And depression can come from a number of different causes. Uh, some have biological aspects like postpartum depression. Uh, some have environmental aspects like seasonal affective disorder. Uh, and many have spiritual aspects to them. According to the National Network of Depression Centers, there is one death by suicide every 12 minutes in the United States. And the number of suicide attempts is much higher than that. Rates of depression since the early stages of the COVID response have grown some three to fourfold by most estimates. And the problem is not only out in the world, but Christians can and do suffer from depression and anxiety as well. William Cooper, who was a close friend of Amazing Grace author John Newton, suffered most of his life with severe depression, even to the point of suicidal thoughts and attempts. Yet God used him to write a number of great hymns of faith, including There is a Fountain Filled with Blood that we're going to sing in just a little bit. He ultimately lived to the age of 68, but the year before he died, he published a poem titled The Castaway in which he details the sad, the sad account of a sailor who was washed overboard during a rough storm in the Atlantic. I don't have time for the entire poem, which runs 11 stanzas in length, but let me summarize it, and I'll read just the last two stanzas of his poem. Uh, this poor man, after being swept off the ship and into the deep sea, could only watch helplessly as the ship sailed on unable in the violent storm to turn back to attempt a rescue. He ultimately drowned and was never seen again. And in the final two stanzas of his poem, Cooper draws a haunting parallel between the man drowning helpless at sea and Cooper's own struggles with depression. Uh, one quick word note, uh, descanting, which is a word I'll read, just means talking at length. So the final two stanzas of William Cooper's The Castaway read this. I therefore purpose not or dream descanting on his fate to give a melancholy theme a more enduring date. But misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone when snatched from all effectual aid we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. William Cooper was finally relieved of his battle with depression the next year when the Lord took him from this life to the next. Uh, one thing 
that my counselor brother-in-law shared with me that I found fascinating was a study that was done called Wired for Awe, A-W-E. Interestingly, this was a secular study, but their conclusions are exactly what we would expect based on how God has made us. In the study, participants were shown various pictures and then were asked to draw pictures of themselves. When people were shown majestic nature settings and awe-inspiring pictures of creation, invariably, the, the pictures that they drew of themselves were smaller. What they concluded in the study was that awe, which is defined as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder, awe gets attention off of self. Again, from Richard Baxter, when we see ourselves through God's eyes, our questions are reversed. Instead of marveling at how bad things could happen to good people like us, we stand amazed that God has done anything good at all for proud sinners like us, much less sent his own son to die for our sins. In addition to seeing our own puniness and sinfulness, in the presence of God's greatness and holiness, there is another answer to the problem of God's control over our suffering. The answer is to realize that God's sovereignty is actually our best and only hope. It is not necessary for us to have all the answers in order to continue to hold fast to God for salvation. So, is darkness the final word? That is the end of Psalm 88, but Psalm 88 isn't the end of the story. Great suffering is sometimes the lot of God's people. Afflicted Christians should not consider themselves abandoned by God, as if suffering were somehow unexpected. In 1 Peter 4.12, we read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We are called to fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. While we suffer, we are not alone. As we see in Psalm 88, it is legitimate to feel such things and to pour them out in prayer. But Peter goes on in verse 13 to say, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his, when his glory is revealed. Some so-called preachers insist that Christian faith must result in earthly riches, good health, and social approval. A popular verse for them to quote is Romans 8.37, which states, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we cannot ignore that the verse that precedes that, Romans 8.36, uh, uh, quoting from the psalm says, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds a lot like the kind of suffering that Heman endured. Paul then reminds us of the great truth of verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mentioned earlier that three separate times in this psalm, Heman declares that he continues to pray. As it was for him, so it is for us. The important thing is to keep praying, even when the most that our hearts can muster is complaint and accusation. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are the God of our salvation. We thank you for sending your son to suffer more than we ever will so that he could sympathize with us in our pain and our weakness. We are so grateful for your promise to never leave us and never forsake us. And we cling to the reality of that promise and your absolute faithfulness to keep it, even through times when we may not feel it. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.